Greetings to each of you in Jesus' name. It's good to be back to worship with you. I think it was the fall of 2015 when we were here last, and it's good to reconnect with Wayne and Sharon and with Stan and Beth and some of the rest of you that we've learned to know and appreciate over the years. Sally and I did drive up Friday. It's a long trip from Virginia. It was about 20 hours, and we were sure we're glad to get here. It's so far south that uh, we may have trouble even understanding some of your ways and your doings here, maybe even in recreation. Uh, You know, some of you like to go out on the lake. You have a lot more lakes than we do in Virginia. And you like to uh, ski and you like to wakeboard. But I've even heard it said in our area that these people like to ski and they like to waterboard. So you all be careful when you're out on the lake when you're waterboarding. I would like to say to Dan and and to Eric, I'd like to commend you for your investment and time at Maranatha Bible School. Some of the others maybe have taught there. Uh, You all have been a blessing to our youth in Southeastern Conference, and I'd like to thank you for it. I'd like to begin this morning with a question. You don't have to raise your hand. A few questions to consider. I could have preached some different sermons, I guess, this morning. Uh, Some other sermons I probably would have rather preached. But the sermon that I have on my heart, I guess, is one that affects all of our churches. And uh, just share a couple questions to begin with. How many of you are concerned for the purity of the church at large? You don't need to raise your hands. If you want to, you can. I'd like to narrow that down a little bit. How many of you are concerned for the purity of the church here at Hayward at Northwoods? I'd like to narrow it down a little bit more. How many of you are concerned with the purity of your own heart? How do you and I respond when we become aware by the Holy Spirit or it's revealed to us by someone else that we have a sin or an inconsistency in our life that needs dealt with? What do we do? How do we respond? And brothers and sisters, I feel like when we lose sight of the holiness and the reverence of God, we drift out into complacency. We drift out into left field. It's interesting, in Revelation chapter 3, considering the church at Laodicea, they had, a, they had a concept of their life. And they said, we're rich and increased with good. We're rich, we are increased with goods. We don't have need of a thing. But what was Jesus' perspective? He said, you're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. So we need to go to God and the Holy Spirit to find out where we are. What about our our life? I would just like to share that uh, some years ago, a younger brother, unless you think I'm coming here, loaded my gun to shoot. That's not right. I would like to say that the the sermon this morning was born out out of life's experience, my own personal experience. And I share this, a a younger brother from another congregation 
approached me some time ago with some concerns that he felt he needed to share about my life. Would I be governed by pride in my age and lash out with inconsistencies I could see in his life? Or would I listen carefully and seek to profit from the validity of his concerns? Whether we are the initiator or whether we are the recipient, the attitude makes all the difference in the world. I would, for a text this morning, I would invite you to Proverbs 27:17. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 27 verse 17. And I read, Titanium sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his subordinate. Already there's questions running in your mind. Externally, you probably were wondering when I last had my glasses checked. Internally, you probably are wondering about the integrity of my heart. And you probably wonder, what in the world, what version do they use in Virginia anyway? Let me read it right. The Bible tells us, iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of what? I like a response from you. Thank you. Iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth it, the countenance of his friend. And I brought along a little illustration. As we're thinking about the sharpening process, uh, the title of the message this morning is Tools God Uses to Sharpen. So most of you are familiar with sharpening, right? This is one of my favorite hunting knives. And to sharpen a hunting knife, you must have steel. Is that correct? All right. So I'd like to sharpen my knife a little bit. It's not working very good. Now, we had a couple in our church that did sharpening for a business. And they could give you the mechanics or the importance of, of how you sharp. Sharpen, um, there must be about a 25 or 30 degrees uh, difference between, I mean, as you notice, this is not a very good way to sharpen a knife, right? There, and I can't do it. Like, there's probably people in this audience that could really go up like this. Something like that. That's the way you sharpen a knife. But this couple from our congregation could have helped us understand the mechanics of a sharpening process. But there are three things that are critical in a sharpening process. Number one, the quality or integrity of the stone is very important. Secondly, the quality or surrender of the steel is very important. And thirdly, the angle or the, rep- the approach of the sharpening process. Obviously, my approach was pretty poor when I'm going like this, right? <clears throat> so let's remember this verse. 
Iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. Like I said, the title of the message is Tools God Uses to Sharpen. And what are some of those tools? Obviously, number one, we have the Word of God. That is so important. God uses experiences in our life. We have a conscience within that God uses to help sharpen our life. We have the Holy Spirit. Praise God for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Are you glad for that this morning? But sometimes God uses other people. And that kind of goes along with our text verse. This morning, I'd like to share two accounts from the New Testament of religious leaders who felt it was necessary to approach someone about a sin or inconsistency in their life. But before I read those two New Testament accounts, I'd like to give us some Bible doctrine to look at to help us to understand the sharpening process. Did these religious leaders, as they approached somebody else, did they do it right or did they do it wrong? The Bible gives us direction and how, uh, how it should be done. When rebuke is necessary, how should it be carried out? Let's look at Matthew chapter 18. What would be a passage that would give us some direction when rebuke comes, becomes necessary? Matthew chapter 18. Let me say this. Close your Bibles. That's strange, isn't it? How many of you can tell me what's the first step? I believe you are Bible uh, believing people and you know what the word says. But who can tell me what's the first step when a brother uh, offends you? What are you supposed to do? What's the Bible say? Don't look. Tell me. Correct. And I'll go ahead. No, that was the first step. What's the second step? After someone approaches somebody and does it privately, what's the second step? Brother Dan, you're ready to share. That's correct. And thirdly, what's the third step? That is correct. Now I'll read. Matthew 18. You all did well. I figured you would. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell them his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to t- tell, excuse me, but if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. So as I read these two passages from the New Testament, consider Matthew chapter 18. I'd like to share uh, Galatians chapter 6, one, verses 1 and 2. I should be able to quote this. Uh, Galatians 6. One and two, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. I remember big, tall, I think his name was Glenn Martin from Cumberland Valley in Maryland. Anybody know him? Big, tall, Glenn Martin. He made this quote, if I remember right, at the Pike Church one time, and he said something similar to this. I wonder if a half, I wonder if half of the problems in the church 
would be resolved if they followed the, the formula in Matthew 18. And brothers and sisters, I guess I feel like we in conservative circles could do a little bit better in applying Matthew 18 to the life of our churches. That's just my opinion. I don't know how you all feel. And then also include Galatians 6, 1 and 2. They were so important. Okay, now I'd like to consider these two passages. Uh, the first point of the message, maybe I forgot to tell you, that was biblical guidelines relating to rebuke. The second point of the message is about the woman that was taken in adultery from John chapter 8. I invite you there. John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. Could I ask for a drink of water? And this is kind of strange because often when I preach, I don't drink water, but I don't know. I seem to be a little dry. I'd appreciate it. John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down, and he taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. I've often wondered. I would love to have seen what Jesus wrote there in the sand. I don't think we're told. Verse 7, so when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast the stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they, and they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Or go and leave your life of sin. As we consider Matthew 18. Thank you so much. As you consider Matthew 18 and Galatians chapter 6 verses 1 and 2. As you think of these religious leaders and how they approached this woman, did they do it right or did they do it wrong? You don't have to respond. These are just thought-provoking questions. But what do you think? Did they do it right or wrong? I believe they did it wrong. In verse 3 and 4, the religious leaders, they seem to be more concerned with condemning than recognizing their own personal need. Secondly, and you might say, well, I'm not sure about that second point. I said here that the the religious leaders skipped steps one and step two in Matthew 18. And you probably will say, well, they didn't have Matthew 18 at that point, and they probably didn't. But the religious leaders, they didn't go do it privately or take someone with them, but they took it right to Jesus. 
They were more concerned about, about that than they were about the restoration process. Thirdly, in verse 5, the religious leaders had knowledge of they had a head knowledge of scripture, but they had no compassion. That's pretty, that's pretty common when you read accounts in scripture of the religious leaders. And fourthly, in verse 6, and I think this is pretty key, the religious leaders came with a purpose. They came in hypocrisy in their point. I don't think they cared that much about the morality of the woman or the man. I might be wrong. But they came to trap Jesus. That's what they came for. I'd like to consider Leviticus chapter 20. What was supposed to happen if somebody was caught in adultery? The Mosaic Law speaks to it. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. And the man that committeth the adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. I ask you, where was the man at? They brought the woman, but where was the man at? Did they care about him? You know, I don't know about these religious leaders, but it seemed to me that they could have in glee decided that they was going to call a special session of the Sanhedrin together and say, we got him now. It don't matter what he says. If he says the killer, we got him. If he said, let her go, we got him. It doesn't matter. Because if I understand right, the Jews did not have the ability or it was not legal for them to be living in the land that they were living and they couldn't say, okay, you stoner. That was only to be given, that law was only to come from the Romans. So if Jesus said just to stoner, he would have been in violation of the Roman law. And if Jesus would have said, no, let her go, let her go, the Jews could say, well, look at the Mosaic law. They said, Moses said you're supposed to stone her. So it didn't matter which way Jesus answered. I think the religious leaders thought we got him now. In the fifth way, in verse 9, it seems like the religious leaders, they were guilty of self-righteousness and sin. And it's kind of interesting in this story. You hear, it talks about, it seems like a service was already in process. The people had come in. They wanted to hear Jesus. And he was expounding. The Bible says he taught with authority. And you can just see these people just hanging on Jesus' word. And all of a sudden there's a commotion. The doors are blown open. And in comes the scribe, the religious leaders dragging this woman up and bringing her right up in front of Jesus and said, Make a judgment. Can you imagine how distracting that was? Did they really care for that woman? I heard, I don't know whether this is true or not, but I heard some years ago thinking about how harsh sometimes people can be. There was a bishop that had preached a sermon on eschatology and following the sermon, there was a man within the congregation that disagreed with his view of eschatology and he excommunicated him on the spot when he told him, you know, he differed in his view. Is that the right approach? Is that the right angle? And here's the lesson. As we think about this, what happened in this situation here, 
As we think about the sharpening process in this account that I just read to you, it seems to me that the angle of attack by the religious leaders was wrong. The quality or the surrender of the steel, the woman, was much better than the quality or integrity of the stone, which was the religious leaders. They were very overbearing. And one group went home from church condemned. And one went home justified. I say to you that the angle of approach is very important. Third point of the message, I'd like to consider another New Testament passage in Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, verses 24 to 28. Thinking about Aquila and Priscilla and this man Apollos. Acts chapter 18, verses 24 to 28. And a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man, and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. And notice what this man had going for him, Apollos. He was an eloquent man. He was mighty in the scriptures. This man was instructed in verse 25 in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, there's a third thing. He spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of the Lord, the way of God more perfectly. What was the result? And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them which helped them much which had believed through grace, for he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And I ask you, did Aquila and Priscilla, did they do it right? Did they rebuke in the right manner, or did they do it wrong? What biblical principles did they uphold? In verse 26, Aquila and Priscilla followed the first step in Matthew 18. They followed it perfectly. They took this man, Apollos, and they did it privately. That's the correct way. Secondly, Apollos was viewed as an equal, as a brother, as a gift to the church, as a friend. Iron sharpeneth iron. Show a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. Aquila and Priscilla didn't act like they, this man was a subordinate. This man was a friend. He had a lot going for him. Look in the first part of this passage. He had four or five beautiful attributes in his life. And yet he was willing to surrender. He was a man of humility. And he was willing to listen, to hear what Aquila and Priscilla had to share with him. Thirdly, despite his head knowledge of Scripture and the spiritual gifts he had, Apollos was both humble and teachable. Do we need that in our churches today? I need that. I hope you do. I assume you do. Maybe somebody has a gift, and yet if they're willing to surrender, they're willing to listen to their brother or sister. Look who wins. Everybody is blessed.
as you think about the sharpening process in this passage, I believe the, the angle of approach was correct. When Aquila and Priscilla, when they called Apollos and they took him privately, the, the angle of approach was right. It was good. And there was a sharpening process that went on. And who benefited? I would say, suggest to you that both the quality or integrity of the stone, we'll call this Aquila and Priscilla, that was very good. And also the quality and surrender of the steel, which was Apollos, was very good. And I ask you, who benefited in this account? Apollo, uh, Aquila and Priscilla benefited. Apollos benefited. The church benefited. And much blessing happened because things were done in a right manner. Are there times when we need rebuke in the life of the church? Yes, we do. And sometimes it's hurt. It's not easy. But whether we are approached or whether we need to approach someone, what's the attitude of our heart? Do we desire to condemn or do we desire to restore and make better? And do I recognize that within my own life that I need people to come to me at times? I told you in the first part of this sermon that I had a younger brother that came and shared some concern for my life, for my heart. Sanctification and growing spiritually is a process. Most of us are more concerned with the destination than we are in the journey. We trust God's intentions for our life, but we fear his methods. What might God be choosing to shape my life more in the image of his son? Does he want to use the word? Absolutely. Does he want to use the Holy Spirit? He does. It might even include a brother or sister that God would like to use in my life. To make me more into the image of Jesus Christ. The text verse, once again, if iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. And I would tell you that that brother that approached me, I think the angle of approach was nice. He came to share, he had tears in his eyes. He didn't come to take me to task. He came because he cared. The angle of approach was correct. If God lays on my heart to initiate rebuke, what is my attitude and goal and going? Is it condemnation or is it restoration? But what about the times when God may allow somebody to come to me to approach me? What is my attitude? What's my goal? Is my attitude pride and self-justification or is it surrender, the surrender of the steel? If we resist and rebel against the tools that God would use to purify our lives, what are we saying to God? God has ideas of what he wants to do in our life. And let's don't get in the way. He knows what he's doing. Are we willing to surrender? Are we willing to submit to what God wants to do in our life? 
I've experienced both the good and the bad on the side of rebuke. How about you? I bet you I could ask your ministry, have you been rebuked? I bet they say, yeah, we, we experienced that. We know what you're talking about. I remember many years ago, soon after I was first ordained, I was asked to share at the Berean meetings. I think it was on Sunday observance. And after, after the, I don't remember the exact title, but after the sermon, there was a brother, and I'll tell you who it was because I appreciated it. Uh, Bishop Tim Myers from Georgia. I don't know if you know him or not. He came to me and he said, Jay, I don't think you made a very good connection between the Old Testament Sabbath and the New Testament Lord's Day. And he did it in such a nice way that I appreciate it. But also, at that same, after that same sermon, maybe you think they were unloading on me. I don't know. But there's another brother that came. And he, he kind of got under my hide. Um, and I didn't sense the same attitude. Maybe what he said was right. But I just, the attitude, and which one do I remember? I, pretty, I remember the, kind of the bad that happened, but I just like to give credit to Tim Myers. Because I think he spoke from the heart. He spoke because he cared for me. And he wasn't trying to put me down. He was trying to help me. Uh, maybe the next time that I would preach on the Sabbath, or uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, I believe was the title. But I'm asking us, let's be careful. Um, this isn't in my notes, but I'm going to share it anyway. I think one of the keys to rebuke, I learned from Eli Yoder, Bishop Eli Yoder, that's going to his reward. Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, I think it's pretty key. Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Let's say that Brother Stan and I, something happens this week. We need to resolve something. I don't think it's going to happen, Stan, but let me use you as an illustration. But, you know, I may think my way. Stan may think his way. But what does God think? Probably if we need to resolve something, we should sit down together in the living room over a cup of coffee and we can say, let's pray. Lord, seek out what is my heart. And I think to, to make progress in situations, relationships, we know that there's lots of relationships in the church and sometimes they can be strained. But how do we do uh, when we need to work through some of these issues, and I think it's key that we meet in the name of the Lord, that we pray, that we seek Him. Lord, show me my heart. Show me my attitude. And I think it will go a long way in resolving issues. Lastly, fourth point of the message, I'll close here shortly. I'd like to give you four passages from the New Testament, scriptures that apply concerning rebuke. I already gave you the first one. I didn't realize. I haven't preached this for a little while, okay? This sermon, but it's one I think we need. When we need to initiate rebuke or whatever, it's, it's good that we meet in prayer. Matthew 18, verse 20. I think it's a very key. Secondly, James 3, 17 and 18. James chapter 3. Verses 17 and 18. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle. What's the next one? 
Ooh. Are we? Easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Easy to be entreated. Does that mean even ordained men? We need to be open to a younger brother in the church coming to us as ministry? I think maybe it could depend on our view of administration. And I know there's different views of administration. I'll not go into that here. I could, but I don't think I'm going to. And I think that makes some difference. What is my view of administration? And I would ask, Brother Todd sitting back here, he's your bishop, is that right? Does Brother Todd need to be open to you as a brotherhood to come to, to share something in his life? Or does Brother Todd say, I'm accountable to God, I'm not accountable to you? I don't think that's your attitude, Brother Brother Todd. But are we easy to be entreated? That's, isn't that what we read here? Are we easy to be entreated? Or does that brother that wants to come and share with me think, I'm scared how he's going to react. There ain't no way I'm going to talk to him. Matthew seven twelve would be another. Thinking about the golden rule. When we need to approach someone or somebody needs to approach us. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. The last passage I'd like to consider as we think about scriptures that apply to rebuke is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16. The Bible tells us, But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, for whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. So we're thinking about the process, the sharpening process. How is the integrity? How is our integrity? The integrity of the stone. How is it? Is there any surrender in your steel? How about your angle of approach? May God help us to grow as individuals. May the church here at Northwoods, at Hayward, the church of Jesus Christ also be strengthened as we surrender not only to Him and to His Word, but to each other. May the Lord bless you to that end. Shall we have a song, please?